Hi, and welcome to Security Explained. I'm Chris Grayson. I'm Drew Porter. And I'm Logan Lamb. We're coming to you every two weeks with tips and tricks on how to protect yourself and your loved ones out there on the internet and in real life. What image comes to mind when you think of the word hacker? Is it a hooded figure in a Guy Fawkes mask? Are they typing away furiously at a keyboard with six brightly glowing monitors in front of them? While we're sure that there are people out there that fit these descriptions, hacker culture is much more than the common stereotype. We can't hope to give a full definition of hacker culture here, but we can share some insight into what parts of our community stand out in our minds and are important to our colleagues. With this knowledge in hand, perhaps what a hacker is and what they do will be both demystified and less menacing. And to kick us off, Drew, what does the term hacking mean to you? I know that you're really into barbecue hacking. Oh, God. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) So... Let's uh, let, let's get that first point out right away. Uh, if it doesn't have something to do with technology, I personally do not believe that you can do quote unquote hacking with it. Uh, I do believe hacking requires a technology piece to it. And I'm not saying technology like the wheel is technology. Yes, it is. I'm saying technology as in does it process one zeros? Uh, is it electronic? stuff like that. So hacking in its simplest terms means making something do something it was not originally intended to do to serve whatever purpose you're trying to hit at that time. And this can be leveraging a piece of software or hardware. And let's say, you know, the software, um, scans the internet but you're like you know what i want it to only scan uh you know hardware devices that have this particular signature on it and that's currently not a feature in it you hack up some module for it and now that's what it does right that that could be a form of hacking so abusing or re repurposing uh, technology to serve the function you want it to serve a set of an original function. And and then the, the barbecue thing. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't I don't believe I don't believe in like hair hacking. I don't believe in barbecue hacking, food hacks, you know, stuff like that. Um <laughs> Yeah. Drew, what would you call it then? What would I call it then? Just not hacking. <laughs> just, just not hacking. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, if, uh, there's got to be a specific. You're, term you're, for each you're one. a barbecue master. Yeah, you, you, yeah. You, 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 I don't know. Like, what? <laughs> those aren't my things, so I don't think about what what one would call it. But yeah, I, I, I do believe there has to be a core technical part to it. And so, and for for con- and I know a lot of people are going to disagree with that. Yeah, and for but, context, right before we started recording, Drew was uh, emphasizing how much he didn't think barbecue hacking was actually hacking. So <laughs> he's got a really out for the barbecue hacking. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And I would have thought that, that this was right up Drew's alley. Uh, how about you, Logan? Yeah, I think Drew's definition is covers pretty much all the bases I would cover. It has to focus on technology. And for me, it really comes down to taking a piece of software, hardware, what have you, and then taking a creative approach to just will it into doing what you want it to do. 
I, the key part of hacking for me is taking something and making it do something it was not originally intended to do. I feel like uh going to sound like a broken record here because I my my views on this are largely in line with uh both of both of you. I I remember back in I don't know when it started that like it's like let's go have a hackathon and that meant that we're just going to feed a bunch of college kids like Mountain Dew and pizza and keep them in a room for 24 hours and see what software they can write and like that's what a hackathon <laughs> is. Um and yeah. you know Hacking is always used to or is consistently used to refer to just like being creative and thinking outside the box and and it, it's used in all these different kind of venues and and I think that you know that that largely aligns with my beliefs as well where it's like okay yes you have to be creative and you have to think outside the box but uh yeah I'm I'm kind of not a big fan of how it's being used to apply to literally everything of like there's the there's the guy that does the body hacking where he just puts a bunch of butter in his coffee and is like this is it and it's like this is not hacking this is just you trying to no. <laughs> be, like scam people away from their money um <clears throat> but to 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 kind of add some additional color to to Logan's definition though cuz cuz it is this thing where it's like we're going to take something and we're going to make it do something that it was not initially intended to accomplish um and I, I want to highlight something with respect to software there, because really, like when it comes to writing software, if writing software was as simple as I have an idea and then all of a sudden it turns into code that does that idea, I'd be out of a job. <laughs> like if that's all it took to to write software, then you know that then it wouldn't be such a hard problem and and software engineering really is a a a fairly difficult discipline to to be good at and and so especially when we're talking about the the technological you know for the folks that that don't agree that hacking is only technological uh when we're talking about the the application of the term hacking to technological feats most of the time you are basically working in this middle ground between what somebody intended something to do that they built and what it can actually do, right? Because again, if writing software was as simple as I have an idea and all of a sudden software appears that can do that idea specifically and just that idea and only what I intended it to do, then software engineering would be an easy discipline, no problem, everybody could do it. But there is always a delta between what did I want something to do and what can it actually do? And it might be because you didn't think about corner cases or it might be because you didn't think about the fact that it's going to be receiving, um, you know, basically bad input from a malicious third party or something to that effect. But it's like hacking to me is identifying the discrepancy between what something was intended to do and what it can actually do and exploiting that discrepancy. That, that that's a great way of putting it. So I have a great example of a hack that I ran across recently, which is not a traditional security hack, but it's definitely in the spirit, and I call it hacking. Did you guys see? Um, there's a speedrunner who was able to complete Paper Mario very quickly. Oh yeah, doing something kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, so the way this worked was, the speedrunner actually. 
he played Paper Mario for some period of time, and then he hot-swapped out the cartridge for Legend of Zelda Ocarina mm-hmm. of Time, played that a little bit, swapped back to the original cartridge, and then just had an in-game like credits scene. Yep. And the reason that was able to work was, be- was because he and the community figured out how the N64 in those games actually worked and took advantage of it. Yeah, I'm I'm so impressed by these various video game exploits. Like it's such a it, like I remember I remember seeing somebody playing Pokemon Red and uh you could just walk in a pattern in this particular field to program this bytecode and then like jump off a ledge and all of a sudden it turned into a uh, breakout. So he was playing Pokemon and then he like walked around in this field it was sped up for, like hours and then like triggered the the exploit and all of a sudden he was playing breakout. That's so wild. <laughs> and 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 just to be clear, uh hacking doesn't have to be security related. Mm, like you mm. can do non no, non security related hacks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like like the two that were just given with the video games, right? Like those those are both hacks for sure. Um so don't don't think it has to be technical related, but it, in my opinion, but it doesn't have to be security related. So if we think about the original term of hacking from MIT, which I think had to do something with trains. Yeah, yeah I, like the the Tech Model Rail, Railroad Club. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That was uh that that's where the term hacking as as we kind of understand it came from. It wasn't a one-to-one translation uh to how it is today, but I mean I, I always thought that was interesting. That was where hacking came from at least when i was looking it up yep uh you know many years ago when i was just like oh okay so you can do hacking as like a job uh so how uh let's let's look up where the you know origins of this came from and i was like oh model trains. model trains what? in the 1940s do, yeah yep. do i have to get in the model trains to become a professional <laughs> hacker <laughs> drew wears a conductor's hat to every one of our recordings uh, yeah, pretty much. You don't you don't see it, but but a conductor's hat. There's other things you don't see. Uh, I don't even know if Chris is wearing pants. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's 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 2021. I don't know who's wearing <laughs> pants anymore. Uh, oh, <laughs> but it, so so from that group from that group at MIT though, it's like they were dealing with trains. Um, but one of the big kind of like uh, I guess kind of like forces behind their the, that group is that they were never said like they needed to know how everything worked and they needed to kind of like pull everything apart to understand everything to you know the the smallest detail and that you know across the definitions of of hacking that we've offered uh there is kind of this core ethos that uh is kind of a, a common undercurrent and you have to have curiosity right like every single one of the the folks that I would consider a hacker is super curious, like, and and it's not always just about technology. It's like well, they see something and they don't understand how it works, and it's like they're immediately driven to figure out, like, wait, I I need to know, I need to have, what's going on here. Um, and then there's also you know that that's coupled with thinking outside the box. So once you know how something works, right, like once you know how a system in its entirety is designed and and implemented, uh, you can tell how it was put together incorrectly. Right. So it's like, oh, well, it turns out that they designed it in this way and they weren't thinking about this abuse case or this use case. And therefore, I can make it do something that it's not supposed to do. 
Um, so the ability to think outside the box, you know, look at look at a system and figure out how it can do something that it's not supposed to or was not initially intended to to accomplish is is another kind of tenet here. And then, um, you know, to to Drew's point uh, about like <laughs> yeah, there's like hair hacking and and body hacking and and barbecue hacking. Like yeah, those are nice uses of the term, but not what we're talking about here. Uh, you have to have deep technical knowledge. And that's because you have to understand these systems, right? Like, and that's, you know, when, when I was considering what career profession I wanted to have or kind of like what, what specialization within computer science I was interested in, um, I ended up going with security, even though I had some other things that I was uh, interested in. And my reasoning at the time was like, well, if I go into security, in order for me to be competent in this field, I am going to have to basically dive into every technology that I work with to a really deep level. I have to have this really deep technical knowledge and anything that I want to be a security expert on. And my thinking was, well, that's going to be easily transferable. So look, even if I, if I find out that uh, you know, I don't like being in the security industry or security isn't what I want to do full time... Um, that the technical knowledge I will have accrued in that process will be easily transferable to any other sort of tech discipline that that I'd be interested in, um, and you know that that for me has largely turned out to to be true. Any any thoughts you guys have on on those points? You also, I think, have to be so the thinking outside the box. Uh, I would add a subpoint to that, saying that you have to be very creative, which also limits in my opinion, the amount of people that can actually be hackers because they have to be able to think both like an engineer and they have to think like an artist, right? Mm. And few people can do both mm. really well. I like that. Like there are amazing engineers that only do engineering, um, but they don't have a creative side. And then there's amazing artists that don't have a uh, engineering logical thought process side. Um, you have to combine both of those. I, I like that, especially because, you know, when it, when I was doing penetration testing full time, I very much saw the work that I was doing as a creative discipline. Like it, it is consistently yeah. just kind of like, you can't just read a book and and be like, oh yes, here are all the exploits and here are the ways things are broken. It, it's literally just kind of like pulling apart a thing and then and you know looking at looking at how it works. So. Um, Chris, yeah. Uh, to that point, uh, what do you guys think of how most people use the term hacking with regards to like script kitties and people just running Metasploit and things like that? Oh, yeah, because it is hacking, but it, it's definitely distinct from what we're discussing right now. That's a that's a that's a good point. Um, so this notion, if you've ever heard the term script kitty, uh, it's kind of a derogatory term to refer to somebody that uses kind of like exploit tools, uh, but doesn't really understand how they work, right? So it's the year 2021. There's a ton of tools out there. And I think we'll, I'll, I'll actually get into this uh, a bit more. We'll, we'll get into this a bit more when we talk about kind of the open source software aspect of the industry um, or of the culture. But in this day and age, you can download all sorts of hacking tools for free, no problem, on GitHub, all good. And they will do various kind of nefarious things. They're not going to do much in most cases, 
Um, but you can totally download a tool and point it at something and press a button and it might work because just like security posture can be that bad in, in various uh, kind of older, older locations. Um, so, so the term script kitty is referred, is ref- used to refer to somebody that just downloads these tools, doesn't understand how they work and then uses them um, without an understanding of the ramifications of, of their actions. And uh, yeah, so, so you can call those people hackers. I think to a lot of people, uh, you, you would call those people hackers. But that's, that's a good point, Logan, uh, in that at least within hacker culture, the term hacker is usually reserved as a, um, uh, I guess, a title of respect, right? Like a lot of people wouldn't call themselves hackers. They would call a bunch of people that they know hackers because like giving yourself that title is kind of a, um, can be seen as a, a like, uh, you don't really deserve it. Uh, but but yes, within within the industry, that is typically uh, typically used to refer to somebody in a, uh, in a in a manner that is like respectful. I would say. Yeah, I would say the script kitties they are hacking, but that doesn't make your themselves a hacker, mm-hmm. right? Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. So mm-hmm. like that. my deep thought for the podcast. <laughs> All right, guys, I'm out. <laughs> Job done. <laughs> Uh, so we've now that we've talked a li- little bit about uh, what does the term hacking mean, let me talk a little bit about the information security industry. And I, I know that like we this this whole conversation that we're having is underneath the umbrella of hacker culture. So I want to I want to call out a caveat here that uh, to a lot of the folks that have been around uh, hacking culture longer, I think they would. Ha- they would take issue with the fact that we're we're even referencing the information security industry as part of hacker culture, uh, just because that's I don't know. It's awfully formal. It's also like it, it, I don't know that it, what hacker culture has meant has totally changed in the last few decades, and uh, so I would say that it is totally part of hacker culture now to be involved in the industry. But at the same time. Um, that's not a prerequisite. It, it's not a prerequisite, and and it also didn't used to didn't used to be that way. And also, you can be in the security industry and not be part of hacker culture. Totally. So, yes, yeah, very much so. There, there's the thing that I say to people. Like I was explaining this to a client, and they actually got a little butt hurt over it. Um, uh, I said, "You work in security, but you're not in the security community." Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I can see why they might take issue hired. And they're just like, "What?" And like, I explained it to them, and they they accept it now. So, like, yeah, they got butt hurt in the beginning, but they accept it. Um, but yeah, I was, you know, I, I'm brutally honest with them, and I was just like, "You." There, there, there are those who work in security, and then there are those who are in security. Yeah. Um, and you know, if you're looking for that great work-life balance, and you're looking to do that corporate America nine to five job, uh, you're probably not in in the security, the hacker <laughs> community, because most hackers I know they'll go work, they'll they'll work their crazy hours, and then they'll go home, and they're like, you know what? I should work on something else, right? And it, doesn't, it, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that they necessarily have to work on work items, but they're doing what they're doing professionally or closely related to what they're doing professionally for their own hobby. Yeah, right. 
It, it is a lifestyle. And this is what I tell university students when I speak to them. Actually, this particular item, this this one talking point got me in trouble with a university in California. Um, and it was, I said, uh, if you're looking to join the security community and, and if you're looking to become a hacker, uh, this is a lifestyle type of career. If you're not ready to make this lifestyle change, that's fine. There's plenty of other sales positions that you could join. <laughs> and <laughs> yo, just always, always busting out the slights, spin fire. Uh, yeah. Well, no, I just wanted it to, you know, be ingrained that like this is a lifestyle type thing. We have enough crappy people in the industry already. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like we we don't need more. Yeah. And we are, we suffer from more crappy people coming into the industry. Yep. Right. Yeah. There, there. We say there are tons of great people in security, and I would say there's not tons of great people. We just happen to know the, the really good people, <laughs> right? Uh, and it seems like it's a lot, but if you look yeah. at it as a whole, as like an industry, there is a ton of crappy people with a few good people. Yeah, and you know, I, I've had employees who aren't in the security community on a technical side go to events like DefCon. And they're like, yeah, I want to, you know, I want to get on the technical side of it. They go to DEF CON and they're just like, nope, never. Like, <laughs> y'all are crazy. Like, ev- everything that you have to learn is just ridiculous. I don't have time to dedicate for that. Yeah. Right. And it's like, yeah, yeah that's, that's fine. Like, that's that's fine. So that, that you know, in, in itself is is also what I would add for the caveat on that. I, that that's, a, that's a good point. And that's. It's it's a good thing to raise is that going back to the point that I was saying earlier, where when I was deciding what direction I wanted to go and with my career and saying like, oh, I'm going to have to get this deep technical knowledge and and that will be easily transferable is like that's one of the that's one of the hard parts about about being in this in this culture is that it's like you are always always have to be on the bleeding edge of technology, right? Because the new stuff coming out, the new things that are being adopted are the places where there's most likely going to be new vulnerabilities. And that's the sort of stuff that like, if you're on the red team side, you're trying to exploit. If you're on the blue team side, you're trying to defend against. So it it really is a, if you don't have that passion, if you don't have that drive, you're going to get outpaced by everyone that does. And it's just not going to be a, a, a very good time. Um, but yeah, so the... The information security industry, just at a high level, let's talk about some of the kind of like forces within it or or entities within it. Um, so a, a big part of the information security industry are consultation services. Uh, so penetration testing, red team, enterprise security. Uh, getting security right is expensive and hard and requires technical discipline. So in a lot of cases, a company may not have a security team in-house, they might just farm out to an ex- external consultancy. I think that that is decreasing uh, a bit just because as things like the SOC 1, SOC 2 compliance continue to gain momentum, uh, the ability to actually maintain these compliances requires that you have somebody in-house. Uh, so new firms that want to want to have these new compliances will, will tend to have people in-house that specialize. But a big part of security of this the security industry are these consultation services and uh, you know we're, we're going to talk about researches uh, re- researching and conferences and open source software in a bit uh, a big part of these consultancies is they you know basically contribute quote unquote research uh, 
And sometimes it's valuable, sometimes it's not. But like basically, there are a number of consultancies within the information security industry that kind of play a big part in driving the industry and, and where it goes and, and kind of the, have some pretty loud voices within it. Then you have security products. And uh, there's a conference in San Francisco called the RSA Conference. And it's free to go to. Well, <laughs> it's, it's free to go to. Because they always release, uh, they always release these codes that you can register to get to the vendor floor for free on. So if you've ever paid for an RSA ticket and only gotten onto the vendor floor, uh, I think that <laughs> you're decidedly not in hacker culture uh, land. Um, <laughs> but our image. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, RSA is the big product vendor conference at least in the united states and uh yeah so like when you when you go to the rsa conference it's at the moscone center in san francisco and they have multiple uh kind of like gigantic showrooms that have all of the uh, all these vendors and i remember I, I still have the bottle on uh on my uh, on my bookshelf there was one year where and i i don't think we know or at least i don't know who did this, but somebody got one of the vendor booths and it was, these are not cheap. Somebody got one of the vendor booths and set up like a uh, horse-drawn carriage sort of thing like you would have seen in the Oregon Trail and had a guy like playing the banjo. And uh, like it, it's just like, it's just like all these like high-tech security vendors and then just like Oregon Trail, horse-drawn carriage, whatever. And uh what was really funny is that they're, they're like singing this song and they're they're giving away these uh, glass bottles that have, are basically labeled as snake oil. <laughs> and, and they're <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, and they're they're asking, yeah. It, it was it was super clever. Like the I, I don't have the bottle in front of me, but I remember like the 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 name of the company. If you took the first letters, so you took the acronym of the company, it was, it was like, like snake or, or something like that. So super clever. And if you stopped by the booth, they would give you one of these bottles and be like, as you walk around the rest of this floor, ask them, ask these vendors how their product is any better than our oil. Um, and, and that just goes to show like there are totally pieces of technology, various security products within um, within the security industry that do provide some value. You know, like antivirus to an extent provides value for sure. It protects against a specific thing. Password managers, fantastic, great. Uh, but one of the one of the core kind of concepts within information security is that you have this trade-off between security and complexity. And that generally speaking, when complexity goes up, security goes down just because there's more places for there to be problems. And so the vast majority of these security products, what they are pitching is like, hey, if you add this additional complexity, then you're going to be more secure. And that's just not how it works. So a, a huge part of the information security industry are these effectively snake oil products that might you, you might think that you're in a better position because you have them, but in reality, it's not actually make you, making you any better. And, and I, I encourage you, go to RSA in San Francisco, get one of the codes, go to the vendor floor and take a look. You will be 
it, it's it's nuts. It's nuts how many uh, uh, vendors are there, and I think they just continue to grow the the amount of uh, floor space that they give to these vendors like year over year because that's where that's where they get a bunch of their money. Um, yeah, if you go to RSA though, be careful what you put as your title, like on your badge. Oh, you're gonna get one year. One year I put like a VP of like purchasing just as a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Worst mistake in my life. Uh, (laughs) Now, okay, but here's, okay. So here's another thing you can do at RSA, which I think I, if I did, if it wasn't me, it was one of my friends that did it. You can, so you, you walk around with this badge and you have a barcode on your badge and you can scan that barcode at any one of the vendor, uh, vendor like booths um, to give them your contact information borrow a friend's badge and scan it at every single one. <laughs> oh no, that's so awful. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you'll fill their inbox real quick. Don't actually do that. That's mean. Um you just hate your friends. Yeah. You just hate your friends. <laughs> ex, ex friend. <laughs> okay, so we have the consulting oh. services. We have the security products that like honestly, you know, the majority of them do not do very much. Uh and then you have kind of enterprises that want security, right? So like I was saying before, you, you have kind of a, a, a continued kind of push to bring more of security in-house. And so you actually do have enterprises that want security, quote unquote. Now, the tricky thing about that is like if you want to do cool stuff in the security industry, then you typically want to be at a company that is going to support that, right? Or you want to be in a position where that sort of behavior is going to be supported. And for enterprises... Unless you are building a security product, unless that is what the enterprise is, then if you're in security, you are consistently on the wrong side of the balance sheet. You are on the cost side, not the revenue generation side, which is to say that the question will always be, can you do what you're doing for less money? And it's not a particularly fun place to be. So uh, enterprises say that they want security in a lot of cases, it's going to be because there's compliance or there's regulatory pressure or stuff like that. If they could get away with not having a security team, they would. Um, and when you work at one of these enterprises and you're on the security team, uh, it's going to be a constant struggle to really be able to spread your wings or anything like that. Because uh, again, you're, you're going to be seen of in the same vein as like IT. I've actually seen plenty of places where IT and security are lumped together. And it's just, you know, th- th- there's memes about what it's like to work in IT because you're, you're just, yeah, it's not, not, not a glorious place to be in a lot of, in a lot of cases. And that, that brings us to compliance. So compliance is a big part of uh, what motivates businesses to actually think about security, especially with like GDPR and CCPA and the new privacy uh, compliance kind of legislation that is making its way through the courts. Uh, there's also SOC 2, which is a way that you can say that you're a secure vendor. There's Sarbanes-Oxley or SOX compliance, which is like basically financial reporting uh, compliance that you have to take into account when, before you go public. Uh, so really, compliance plays a significant role in the industry in that it is the main driving force that is re- making it so that these various companies are actually starting to take security seriously. And and the last thing that I want to touch on in relation to the the industry is private sector versus public sector. Um, when you meet people that work in the security industry, and there are, there are absolutely hackers on both sides of this dividing line, um, but 
the sorts of people that work in private sector versus public sector. And when I say private sector, I mean, you, you go into the private sector, you go and work for private companies or publicly uh, listed companies. And then public sector is you're going to be working for government agencies or, you know, like defense contractors or stuff like that. There is a significant difference um, between the sorts of folks that work in these two. And that's generally attributable to the fact that a lot of the folks that work in private sector either don't want to get a clearance um, just because of the amount of rigor and speculation that that's going to uh, re- require, or they can't get a clearance. Um, and then the folks that work in public sector are just generally speaking. I mean, like, like think about the stereotype of a hacker. It's like, oh, it's the the overweight guy in the basement, which is like, no, not true. But the, there are totally, it's like, yes, people that spend a lot of time in front of computers that don't fit a lot of social norms, stuff like that. Those stereotypes are not something that you typically think of when thinking about government work. And so there's a, it, it's, I have plenty of friends in public sector, plenty of friends in private sector. I love all of them. Um, they're just cut from, from different cloths in, in a lot of cases. Now I'm wondering what you think, what cloth you think I'm cut from. Oh man. Uh, like burlap, maybe <laughs> something really scratchy. Burlap. Oh man, scratchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With the comments I'm throwing at universities and clients, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. freaking sandpaper. Yep. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> Five grit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would also say with the consulting services, as someone who runs a consultancy, uh, stop paying us ridiculous amounts of money to tell you what your team is already telling you. And that message is for executives explicitly there uh you hire talented people listen to them don't don't hire us because you don't want to listen to your people yeah uh drew aren't you undermining your business right now i am well the point the point (laughs) point of my business i'm saying it (laughs) yeah that's right the the the, the point of my business is to eventually go out of business Mm -hmm. right like that is the whole point of the consultancy if i went out of business because all my clients were like totally secure. They don't need our services anymore. Stuff like that. I would be ecstatic. Mm -hmm. The fact that we have to do sometimes rudimentary items, what I consider rudimentary items in the security world for clients makes me saddened because it's like, oh man, come on. Like we're past this. We, we, you should be past this. You know, you're a utility. You're a large communication company. Or a large feud distributor, something like that, right? Yeah. So yeah, that that's yeah. I want to I want to riff on that for a second because now that I'm kind of on the you know I don't work directly in security presently, and now that I'm on the other side and don't work at a consultancy, I see I see the other side of of kind of what's motivating this sorts of behavior. And for for the uh, folks that are not not privy to this, like here's here's the way that security consulting tip, typically goes. There's an internal security team. They have found a problem. They have escalated that problem. The execs are like, we don't think it's a problem. Like you, you, you guys complain about everything. You think everything is a problem. We don't think it's a problem. The security team then contracts with a consultancy and tells the consultancy, hey, go look over there. The consultants then look over there like, oh, yeah, there's a problem over here. They draft the report. They put the report in front of the execs. The execs say, wait a second. This is a third-party expert. Interesting. We do have a problem. It's like, yes, I already told you that. I'm glad that we spent this extra money. So that it can be verified by uh, by an impartial third party, and then stuff gets prioritized. That is, Chris, that's too real. It's it's the yeah, it's yeah. how consultant. It's it's literally penetration. It's frustrating. Yeah, it's it's that's one of the reasons that I got out of penetration testing because I was like, this is here's okay. It, being a professional penetration tester, here's how the engagement goes. Oh, is this 
a customer that we've worked with before. Yes. Let me take a look at that last report and try everything in that last report. And oh, look at that. It all works. Why are we doing this again? Well, so, so, ah, that's why, that's why you need to make sure you work for a consultancy that has the three strikes rule. And what I mean by that is uh, if we work with a client and we do a test with them and then we get hired like six months or a year later to do that same exact test and 90% of those findings come back like the same, we do one strike. And uh, if you get three strikes, we will never, we will no longer work with you. That's cool. Uh, because that. you obviously, you obviously are not like caring about your security posture. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I have... Uh, you know, one of my big weaknesses is I have like an emotional tie to the clients I work with because I want to see them succeed. And what Chris was talking about with consultancies like coming in, the last three like board meetings I had to be a part of, I literally told them, listen to your team. You have a very talented team. Stop paying us to tell you what your team's already telling you. Like, trust them. If you don't trust the team that you hired, why did you hire them? You yep. should fire everyone if you don't trust them and then hire a team that you can hire or that you can trust. Stop paying us ridiculous amounts of money. And, you know, the, the board is there like with and, and other executives were there. It wasn't just, you know, it wasn't the whole board. It was some board members and some executives. And they're like, isn't this your business? <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I mean, that's maybe a business model. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe that's other consultancy business models. But my business model is literally to change how companies think about consultancies. Mm -hmm. That's the only reason why I got in this game. I wanted to start a software company. Mm -hmm. um, but but I got sick with how some consultancies treated customers. And I was like, oh, no, we need to change this. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, oh, man, it is a pet peeve of mine. It is it, it is something I hope changes. Yeah. But, you know. It hasn't. Yep. It, it's changed in some. It's changed with the clients that we've worked with um, for, you know, o over a period of time. It's not like we write one report and board members and executives are like, oh, my gosh, I've seen the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, and that's not how all board members and executives sound in my head. But uh, that's how they sounded right there. <laughs> it's OK. We'll, we'll um, delete that in post. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, you don't want to know how they really sound in my head, uh, but they, uh, but but it is something that is slowly changing, and it's something I want to see change faster, hmm. um, because that would again, it, it, yeah, it's not, it's it's against the business model that I'm in, but that's fine because that's that's actually not my business model. That's other consultancies' business models, mm -hmm. and, and it needs to change as an industry wide. Because you need to trust your security engineers that you hired. You need to trust your security analysts that you hired. Like, yeah. why, why even bother spending all this money? They cost a lot of money. Yep. Um, yep. And that, that so. goes back to, yeah, it's driven by compliance. It's a checkbox. Like, hey, we have a security team. <sighs> I, don't, yeah, that, I don't know what you're talking about. But let's, let's, let's move on. For that. We could right. spend a lot of time talking about <laughs> this. I think that's one of the many reasons that I, that I, got, I, I got out. Um, but yeah, so we've talked about kind of what hacking means to us. We've talked about the information security industry. And I, I want to take this, this next slot of time and talk about kind of the, I think one of the things that I enjoy the most about this industry is uh, kind of conferences, research, and open source software. Logan, why don't you, why don't you kick us off? Uh, I guess we'll get started with open source software. Uh, all of these conferences, research, open source software, it's about... Finding um, 
you know, awesome hacks, doing good work, and then contributing it back to the community. So for those who don't know what open source software is, um, well, uh, let's start with uh, what Chris and I do in our day jobs. So we think about problems, we slap keys, and as we're slapping these keys, we're creating documents. And these documents are source code. And the source code then gets um, compiled, interpreted. It somehow gets executed by a program, and that's software. And, and the key difference between our day jobs and uh, open source software is the code we are writing is closed source, which means um, basically the recipe for the programs is it's a secret of the company we're working for. But that's only one business model when it comes to writing software. Uh, we could probably do an entire episode on open source software now. Now that oh, I'm we should started. go like we should do an episode on like all of our favorite tools. That's yeah, we're, we're gonna have to do that. Oh, yep. that'd be pretty. Yeah, good. Yep, yep, yep. yeah. Actually, we got we we got a we got a comment about that actually from a listener. They want to know what we like to use. Okay, mm. cool, cool. Let's do it. So, um, closed source software is when the source code is not made public. Open source software is the opposite of that, where the source code is made public. And there's lots of uh, motivations for doing this. In the context of this episode and conferences research, it's so hackers can do their cool work, share it with the community, and then have others in the community contribute and just make what was good even better. So it's a very common pattern when you're giving a conference talk, in addition to, say, publishing a paper, you also open source the code. Or one of my personal favorites is you could also open source hardware designs alongside code. So it's like, hey, guys, look at this awesome thing I built. Uh, it's now posted online for free. You can build it yourself. Uh, you can add on to it, hack on it. And if you so choose, you can contribute back to the community. And as um, participants do that, our software and hardware just continues to get better and better. Mm -hmm. Open source software, it, it pervades our lives. And the reason it has had the staying power that it does is because people have a vested interest in seeing the software succeed. So they contribute to it. In a completely selfish manner, because it, it benefits yeah. themselves yeah. alongside the community, mm -hmm. it's it's a fantastic model. And it's it's that's like I uh, I have my my own opinions of kind of human nature and the sorts of things that you can you can trust humans to do, and and like or we're inherently selfish creatures, right? So I think kind of the best situation you can be in is one where something that benefits me also benefits you. Because it's like, if I can do something, it's going to benefit me, but it also benefits others in the process. Like, that's kind of the best best thing that can happen. And in this case, it's like, yes, you write more software, you get reputation for it, but everybody else benefits from it as well. And that's kind of like a core power in the industry. I'm not even... I keep saying industry, the, the culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the reason open source works is because people uh, do work that benefits themselves and it happens to benefit other people as well. Uh, there are altruistic people who contribute to open source but you know i think they're gluts for punishment i don't <laughs> yeah <laughs> having tried to support multiple open source projects myself i'm just like this is it's so thankless now with that we have open source software 
And that can be, you know, a result of uh, some research or some type of school project. Let's say like the Proxmart, right, was uh, a tool for accompanying RFID. It is one of the most public or most widely known about tools for accompanying RFID. It started as a, you know, project when someone was in university. Uh, and then it became an open source product um, that is available for anyone to purchase the hardware and then you can use the software. There's tons of different softwares you can use on it. But it started, uh, which if you're going to use one, I recommend the software by Iceman. Um, shameless plug to you, Iceman. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but, but it started as a research item, right? And not all open source projects start as a research item, but... A lot of them uh, do have some type of background in research. So talking a little bit about security research, I think all three of us have, we've held the title like security researcher before. Mm. Um, we yeah. all worked for a lab. I know you did, Logan, and I am 99.999% sure you also did, Chris. Um, you, you did it for a university though, right? Mm -hmm. As well? Yep. So there is... In the world of security research, there are some controversial views um, and, and there are less controversial views. But the, the general thought around this is when the public knows of a vulnerability, it will require a vendor to fix that item where a vendor may not have the motivation to fix that item if the vulnerability is not publicly known mm -hmm. in itself. So we're talking about research around the idea of vulnerability disclosure. And, you know, there, there's there's lots of feelings about that in the security industry and in the hacker culture itself. Um, I would say the hacker culture side of it is dying a little bit more. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because you don't see people dropping like O-Days at conferences all that often anymore. Right. That's true. Um, and that's not just because you can sell O days for, you know, some amount of money. Um, it's it's for varying reasons uh, in particular. Um, but uh, one of them being that you can also get into legal trouble. Um, companies like to sue people that do research against them. Mm -hmm. Uh, again, they something do. I think we've all experienced as well. <laughs> uh, Unfortunately. <laughs> um the being able to take research, present a problem to the public and be like, hey, uh, you know, there's this problem with this product. Uh, it provides X, Y, Z security, but it actually is making you more insecure having this product. A private company typically, unless it's like a wine node item and everyone who uses that product wants to see a fix, uh, typically will not address that issue or, or, or they'll push it off. And we've seen this with a few different companies uh, in particular where we find a vulnerability and it's not public, right? We, we actually found a vulnerability in their product that allows, you know, some type of, well, actually, how about this? We found a backdoor into our product <laughs> one time. Uh, and and uh, the company was just like, yeah, but that's, you know, that's uh that's our fail safe for when customers lock themselves out of uh, this product. And this product is used by utility companies almost exclusively. And 
it has a hardware component to it. It, it actually is a radio um, that these utilities are using. And I was like, man, like you need to fix this because a lot of customers are using this. And I asked my client like, hey, um, like I understand I am under NDA and I can't release this, right? And that's the one thing. Uh, companies, pro tip, if, if you want uh, evil, your evil pro tip of the day, uh, want to make it so researchers don't uh, release vulnerabilities against your product, uh, pay them lots of money and have them sign an NDA. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. but, <laughs> <laughs> I've but, also um, been, been part of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, but, but with this, you know, I, I, I was very torn. I went to the client. I was just like, you know, you, you paid us to do this, this, uh, this particular pen test, we found this crazy back door. Um, and you know, that this is a previous, it's previously unknown. No one knows about it. Um, like the vendor's not going to fix this. And, um, long, long behold, the vendor didn't fix it. Um, but, but we did one step better. I'll tell you that in a second. But I told, I asked my client, like, I need to tell all my other clients about this. Can I just, can I tell them about this vulnerability that they're all using it because they were using this product? And they said, sure. And sure enough, like once I started telling my other utility clients about this, they started contacting the vendor mm -hmm. and the vendor was like, Oh crap. Like, whoa, okay. Maybe we need to address this now. Cause we've got a lot of people that know about this back door. They had a hard coded password. We shared the password with everyone so that they could validate the finding themselves. Um, and you know, this vendor was now being forced to address this issue. Yep. Um, and, uh, long story short, uh, we just recommended our clients don't use that product uh, for a varying of reasons. And, uh, that company is out of business now, not because of us. I'm not saying that, <laughs> but, um, but it wasn't helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just utilities in nine different states all of a sudden started to look at other RF products and they stopped <laughs> using that product. Uh, but, but it was, if this, this was, and if it wasn't going to be addressed uh, by the vendor and the client was still going to use the product, we actually, I was talking to the client and they're like, you know, we could just have you release this. Like we'd be okay with that. If the vendor doesn't do anything. And I was like, Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Let's 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 do that. Uh, they're out of business now. So or I guess they they uh, they changed their business model. They they work with different RF products. Mm. I should say they don't they don't make um, a WiMAX product anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> so so with that, that type of that that shows you even even with the small like just going and talking to other clients about this product and then them reaching out to that that vendor releasing vulnerabilities to the public does force vendors to make changes, changes that they usually would not make on their own, mm -hmm. not because they don't know about the problem. This company clearly knew that they had a backdoor, right? Um, but because they are, you know, it, it just is not convenient for them. One, one excuse I've heard from a vendor is it just isn't worth the money to fix the vulnerability. Yep. And yep. I was like, you know, you know how you make it worth the money? You have everyone know about that vulnerability and everyone not wanting to use that product anymore. Yeah. And that right? That that goes back to what I was talking about before with the whole balance sheet thing. Like for most companies, security is on the wrong side of the balance sheet and it's always going to be a can we get away with doing less? Um, 
but they, they so there's the there's the act of doing the research and then also within within hacker culture a big part of that is then disseminating the research as well so that releasing it to the public and in some cases it's vulnerability research in other cases it's just like ooh i built a new tool or ooh i found something in a protocol it's not attacking a specific vendor or anything like that but it is taking something pulling it apart looking at it at a level that it hasn't been looked at before and then releasing those findings and so a big part of being in in the community now is the centers around releasing research and that's and and that's commonly at conferences so things like defcon schmoocon uh you know ccc all these different places there's all these brilliant people that have done this really interesting work and then they get accepted at these conferences and they go and present and i would say if you're if you're looking to learn more about kind of like what's going on in the bleeding edge of of security then looking at the watching some of the videos that have been posted from these various uh, various conferences is a is a good good way to go. And then there's also what we call uh, zines, and these have been around for quite a long time. Um, there's like the original Frack zine. There's the Cult of the Dead Cows. There's POC or GTFO. Uh, but these are effectively publications. So I, I see these kind of hand in hand with conferences of. Um, you know where you might not want to get on a stage and present your research, depending on what you've been researching on. Then you can actually submit what you've done in just a write-up, and then you'll get published in one of these zines. And it's just effectively they're they're just text documents that get distributed around. The POC or GTFO uh, one though is kind of the most modern one as far as I'm concerned. They have released two Bibles, I want to say. So there's yeah yeah Logan's holding his copy right now. Um, they you know there's so many episodes and so much cool research that's been that's been done as they've actually bound. Uh, multiple episodes of the of this zine into a Bible, like it's actual on like Bible paper. It has the gold leaf edge and and stuff like that. So so when it comes to so you have the research, you have the curiosity, you have the digging, and then when you go to release, it's either via a conference or a zine or a blog post or something like that. But the the common theme here is you find something that's interesting that you're interested in, you dig in, you find problems in it. You do this for enough time, and then you say, "I'm going to give this back to the community because the community has given me so much to begin with." So, another one on those zines that is becoming more popular to publish is actually people releasing stuff on podcasts now. Oh, well. interesting! So, I did not know that. <clears throat> yeah, I, uh, I was listening to a podcast recently, and they were discussing um, about some research that they were doing. It wasn't a security podcast, it, it, but it was a uh, engineering podcast and this person was releasing this new method or doing something um, and they were releasing on a podcast and I was just like, huh. And the person was like, yeah, you know, I used to write like blogs for this, but now I'm just going to like start releasing stuff on podcasts because it seems to be a better medium for people to be able to, to listen. And, you know, there's always a write up for it as well, but he's not just exclusively doing it on write-ups anymore right or like a blog he's he's talking about it so i was like oh man that's cool so if you got any cool <laughs> vulnerabilities you want to release you can uh hit right us up, uh, on that <laughs> we'll be we'll be happy to uh to to let you release that we provide no legal support when when the companies come after you yeah it's zero uh, <laughs> <laughs> zero cover we'll actually deny that you came on our show <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't know what that episode is. What? Yeah. No, <laughs> just a missing number. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, so this is I mean, so, so this topic is super deep and, and this is 
this is part one uh, of this topic, right? Hacker culture goes way more into um, into the lives, I think, of people in technology than a lot of people realize. And if we were to cover everything, this would be, you know, a three-hour episode. If we really wanted to cover everything, it would be even longer than that because there's multiple parts that we could just dive into, especially on the open source side and the research side. Tons of stuff that we can dive into that has, uh, you know, influenced the hacker culture. But but with that, Chris, you want to you do our three key takeaways for this Ooh, episode? Yeah. Let's do it. So the three takeaways for today's episode are, one, the definition for hacking is contentious, but commonly revolves around creative people finding unique solutions for problems. Two, most people that you could rightfully call a hacker are not bad people and are actually working to prevent bad people from doing bad things. And three, hacker culture relies heavily on giving back and creating new things for a community that has already provided a plethora of free education and content. As we said at the start of this episode, it's not possible to cover everything that hacker culture could refer to in such a short amount of time. There's plenty of good and bad to go around, but for the most part, hacker culture centers around a group of people with innate curiosity and a creative, if sometimes devious, mindset. While the more ridiculous hacker depictions might make for good TV, in reality, we're just a bunch of nerds that have a deep affinity and appreciation for technology. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Security Explained. If you enjoyed listening, we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for new topics that our audience finds interesting, and you might be able to pick our next show. Feel free to reach out via social media or give us a rating on your listening platform to let us know how we're doing. You can find us on the web at securityexplained.fm or on Twitter at SecExplained. Thanks again, and until next time, stay safe. Stay safe.